all these recent storm systems blowing through uh, over the holiday, uh, it's got me thinking a lot about skiing. And they're getting tons of snow up at the mountains. When I was in my early 20s, I used to ski all the time. I could go all day long and then go out at night with Corey, and we would just have a great time, have all this energy. I thought I was a pretty good skier. Uh, and Corey's dad actually grew up skiing all his life and was a ski instructor, and so sometimes he would go skiing with us, and I thought it was pretty, pretty cool that he could keep up with us and, and stuff. Uh, well, then, as I grew older and my physical prowess declined slightly, um, I found that, wow, I'm... Now it's pretty cool that I can keep up with him. And of course, he's getting older at the same time. And, and I guess I came to the realization, I'm not that great of a skier. Basically, uh, I, I'm just young enough and strong enough to will myself to go fast and have enough uh, limited inhibitions to, to do things that are out of control. Uh, but what he was really good at is actually skiing and letting his skis do the work where I was trying to muscle through everything. About 10 years ago or so, I, I learned to rely a lot less on my declining strength <laughs> and endurance and a lot more on my skis to do the work. Actually, that's how the sport's designed in the first place anyway. Well, in the past few weeks, we've been looking at the story of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. God made a promise to Jacob, just like his father and his grandfather before him. And God said, I'm going to give you many children that you would become a great people. And I'm going to give you this land in, in the land of Canaan so that all the nations would come to glorify and to worship God. They would see the goodness of this family and this land and they would come to worship their God. But just as I tried to muscle my way down the mountain in my 20s, relying on brute strength. So Jacob took that promise and tried to force his way on almost his whole life. Instead of relying on God, Jacob relied on his cunning and his conniving and on his incredible physical strength. Jacob deceived his twin older brother Esau out of his birthright. Then he deceived him out of his father's blessing. And then Jacob, fearful of the wrath of his older brother, and rightfully so, his brother is quite a hunter, he runs. And needing a wife, he heads up to his family's people in Haran, neither, nearly 500 miles away. There, Jacob uses his brute strength to do what? To impress a girl. The beautiful Rachel is at the well and he moves the stone that usually would take multiple men to move. Jacob uh, tries to impress the girl. So instead of relying on God to find out if this is even the right woman for him or if this is God's will, he just enters into a labor contract with Rachel's dad, Laban. Happens to be Jacob's uncle. He says, I'll work seven years for your daughter, Rachel. And so he does. Jacob, of course, used deception to steal his brother's blessing. And now he thinks he, he must have avoided the consequences of those actions. He's up in Haran. He's got this beautiful girl. He's, he's just around, about done working his seven years for her. Everything is just fine. But let's be honest, you and I both know that consequences have a way of catching up with us, don't they? Uh, and sometimes even when the heat gets a little bit hot, don't we have longings to just get up and move to someplace new? But no matter whether you change physical locations or your groups of friends or you change churches or you change jobs, wherever you are, there you are. You can't get away from yourself and your consequences of your past actions. So after seven years of labor, Laban deceives Jacob and gives Rachel's older sister Leah to him in marriage, who is 
actually not a very attractive woman, the Bible says. In fact, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, her name Leah means cow. So uh, anyway, so he, he gets deceived and he has to work now another seven years to earn Rachel's hand in marriage. Laban deceived the deceiver. And yet Jacob, ever the man of passion and strength and cunning, comes out of this situation wealthy. In fact, he becomes so wealthy that Laban and Laban, the men of his clan, start to get jealous. And the situation uh, gets hostile for Jacob. So, it would appear that though his strength and cunning have helped him prevail over this new situation, yet again, Jacob has to run for his life from a hostile situation. Doesn't it? I mean, this is, we've, we've been talking about Jacob now for several weeks. His life is a struggle. His whole life just seems to be one trial after another. He worked all in all 20 years for Laban, and now he's on the run again. And as he heads south for Palestine, the land that God promised him, he knows deep in the anxious pit of his stomach, he's got to meet up with that older brother Esau again. He hasn't escaped that confrontation. Now, Bethany just read from Genesis 32, 1 through 21, in which we see Jacob using his strategic cunning to prepare for this meeting with Esau. All in all, he is prepared to give 550 animals from his uh, wealth to his brother, to appease his brother. He's going to send them out before him in different groups so that Esau just keeps getting these gifts and hopefully he'll wear them down with generosity. One commentator said that that is a princely-sized gift. I mean, Jacob is pulling no, no stops here. He's going all out. But there's some subtle clues here that Jacob is beginning to change. Back in chapter 28, God appeared to Jacob in a dream and promised him that he would help Jacob return safely to the promised land, promised him descendants. In response... Jacob worshipped God on that occasion, built the Tower of Stones. But between chapters 28, between that vision of God in heaven and this current story, Jacob has been living almost as if God didn't exist. He's just been doing whatever he does. He's, he's been using his strength, using his wits, using his mind to get through life. It finally begins to dawn on Jacob that despite his repeated failures and despite the, the efforts of his uncle Laban to oppress him, that somehow he's come out extremely blessed in all of this stuff. He begins to put the pieces together that it's God who's been watching out for him, that God's been there the whole time. God's been watching over him, that his God is the reason for his life being spared. God has been fulfilling his promise all along. I mean, Jacob's life is not easy. But when you look at it, he's got two wives, two concubines, 11 sons, at least one daughter we know of, Dinah. He's got all this wealth. Wait a minute. That seems like exactly the kind of stuff that God has been promising him. He's faced now with another dire situation as he's heading back to that promised land. He's got to face his brother Esau. And Jacob is learning slowly but surely to turn to God. He initiates the longest prayer thus far recorded in Genesis. And in that prayer, he reminds God, Hey, remember you promised me all this great stuff. And he asks specifically, Please deliver me from my brother Esau. He prays, 
And He prepares. You know, praying and preparation, they're not mutually exclusive. Praying and preparation aren't mutually exclusive. You can prepare in faith. Jacob has been humbled by 20 years of hard labor for his uncle. Years of oppression in Haran. And now, he's taking a humble stance toward his brother. He's going out basically on bended knee. Going out apologetically. Instead of being the brash old Jacob who just muscles his way through everything, now he's kind of the humbled, fearful Jacob sending out gifts to his brother before he goes. He's almost ready to face his brother Esau. But not yet. The table is set for God's transformation in Jacob. I want to ask you to stand as we read now Genesis 32. 22 through 35, and, and you can follow along if your Bible, that's helpful, um, but sometimes it's helpful just to let the words wash over you. Let it be an aural thing. Listen, listen to the words. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Yabok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Father, thank you for preserving this word. Thank you that this is more than just some story, uh, an interesting story, albeit. But I'm thankful that you have a word for us, that you are the living God who is the same today as you were yesterday. And I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us. Lord, don't let it stay in our heads, but let it change us. Let us receive it. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the scene is a bit odd. Jacob strategically separates his two companies, which kind of makes sense. He finds out from his scouts that Esau has 400 men. That's kind of... A kind of code for he's got a militia. He's got a whole uh, company of people. It's, it's a force that Jacob can't really reckon with. So he splits his, his group into two groups. In, in case, you know, he, he sends one out to Esau as a peace offering. If Esau just says, uh-uh, and slaughters them all, well, now Jacob at least has half his company that's going in a different direction and can maybe escape. So Jacob sends these two companies out to different directions, but he still has his own family close by. 
He's got his wife and his kids, his wives and his kids, and he's got probably a small fighting force with them to like, kind of like guards. And we don't know why, but at night, he fords the Yabbok River with his family, settles them on the other side, but even stranger is Jacob goes back over the stream. He's by himself. And we don't know why. I mean, you ever been up because you've been anxious? You can't sleep? Maybe he just wanted to go for a walk. Maybe he just wanted to be by himself. But the point is that that's exactly what he is. He's by himself with the river between his, his people and him. There he is across the Yabbok River in the dark. And it's there that an unknown man wrestles with Jacob. I mean, just think how weird that is anyway. Like what if you're just outside in your yard and some unknown man wrestles with you? I think that's, that's strange. Um, now, of course, for those of you who know the story, we're going to learn in a few verses that this man is God. But Jacob doesn't know that yet. It's worth a note that Jacob's encounter happens when he's alone. Similarly, in chapter 28, when God appears to Jacob in a dream, Jacob was vulnerable and alone, sleeping in the wilderness under the stars with a stone for his pillow. God is with us all the time. But it's often those times when we are alone that he comes to us and does that transformative work in our souls. Author Ruth Haley Barton wrote the book, uh, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And in that book, she talks about the importance of silence and solitude, of pulling away from the distractions of cell phones and emails, even music and TV, even family, even just the chatter of good conversation, the importance of pulling away from time to time to be still. With God. She likens the soul, which is the, the control center of who you are. Your soul is what makes you you and me me. It's, it's the culmination of your heart and your mind, of everything that you are. She likens the soul as a wild animal. And she says, you know, imagine you're going out uh, on a nature walk and you're really hopeful to see some wild animals. But you go on your walk crashing through the brush, talking on your cell phone at the same time. Well, you know, what are the chances that you're actually going to see a wild animal? Probably very, very slim. She talks about, you know, the, if the soul is like a wild animal, we need to, to get away into silence, away from those distractions, and allow ourselves to be exposed to God. The soul, that center of who we are. You know, in living with the world, all, all of us have been disappointed, we've been broken, we've been hurt. And just to survive in the world, don't we tend to have to put up some kind of guard most often? We have to guard our soul. Even the Proverbs tell us to guard our hearts. It's no wonder that we have an intimacy problem with God when we never slow down to let God talk to us. It's in the quiet place of silence and solitude that our soul is allowed to come out of hiding and allow God to speak to us. And encourage us and sometimes allow God to convict us to reveal things that we've been masking and hiding. And at times, God even wrestles with us. Now Jacob was a man of great resources. He had a sharp mind. And by this time in the story, he has great wealth. And we know about his fabled amazing strength. But there, alone, scared of his brother, isolated from his people... Alone in the dark, he's vulnerable. Now, I was a wrestler in high school, dabbled a little bit, and one of the things I enjoyed about the sport was that there's really no excuses. 
You can't necessarily rely on a teammate because they didn't have tag team in high school wrestling. And you couldn't blame any teammates because it's just you and a person. There's no special equipment to give you an advantage. I mean, you could buy more expensive shoes, but they don't really do anything for you. All you can do is prepare and practice and compete. There on the shores of the Yabuk River, Yachob, Yaabek with God. It's a fun play on words there. The Yabuk River, Jacob's name is Yachob, and Yaabek is wrestle or strive. There's Jacob with none of his other, you know, his wits aren't going to do anything for him in wrestling. His wealth isn't going to do anything for him. It's just mano a feo. And when the man saw that it was a stalemate, he touched Jacob's hip and dislocated it. The hip. I mean, that is, that is the core of a wrestler's strength. In wrestling, if you control your opponent's hips, you are in the driver's seat. So there they're wrestling to a stalemate, and God touches Jacob's hip. It's out of joint. His strength is now withered. He can't even rely on that crutch anymore. And then this, this man, this God wrestler man... He says, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. So what's going on here? Is this, uh, you know, he's got a vampire, he's, he can't be in the sunshine, or is he like Tolkien's trolls that turn to stone when the light comes out? Some scholars believe this is a play on the teaching that no one can see God face to face and survive. I happen to think this is a statement of transformation. In the dark of night, Jacob enters the fray, a broken man with a healthy body. A broken man on the inside with a sharp wit and lots of resources and amazing physical strength. He's strong on the outside, but on the inside he's a mess. He's a mess of anxiety and shame and flat-out sinfulness. He's not yet learned to trust God. In fact, his life thus far has been a wrestling with God at every turn. It's interesting that in the great kung fu movies, it's always the old master who's got the, the milky blind eyes from age. He's always faster than the young cocky apprentice. The apprentice is, you know, he hits him with his cane and smacks him in the head. And it's because, you know, he's lost his eyes, but he's learned to trust his ears, his reflexes, his training, his focus, his chi, right? To us, blindness is a disability. But to the wise and kung fu master... He learns to trust in something else. Okay, if that doesn't do it for you, Jacob is like Luke Skywalker in Empire Strikes Back. Jacob has to go face Esau, just like Luke had to face Vader. Right? Yoda, of course, says in Empire in the murky swamps of Dagobah, he, you're not ready. He goes in that cave and gets his own head chopped off. Remember that scene? So Luke's not ready to go face Vader, but Yoda lets him go, and Luke gets his hand cut off. But here... Jacob is not yet ready to go face Esau. And God doesn't let him go out and get his hand chopped off. He wrestles with him. He confronts him. His training is not yet complete. God needs to complete the training in Esau before he's ready to face his brother, and more so, before he's ready to lead a nation. Now, by the return of the Jedi, right? Luke comes in. He's short a hand, so he's got that kind of... Disability. He's got a mechanical one. It's pretty cool. But he's much more sure of himself, right? Because he's learned how to rely on the Force. He's a Jedi. 
In a, few, in a few verses, Jacob is going to be short the strength he relied upon his whole life. But he's going to be stronger because he's learning how to trust in God. He's going to learn how to live with a limp. And I think if you and I are honest, we spend a lot of our time and energy trying to cover up our weaknesses. Trying to, to hide our limps. We compensate for things like insecurity with being overbearing. People with anger problems, usually insecure people. Passive aggressive, right? It was how we mask uh, some of those interior limps. We've experienced abuse maybe at the hands of someone who was supposed to be caring for us. And so, we spend the rest of our lives trying to control our situation. We become neat freaks, or diet freaks, or workout freaks, or immaculate car freaks, or people with insanely organized theological libraries in their spare bedroom like me. Uh, everything in the world tells us that, that anything worth living for should be about strength and power and being on top. But guess what? There can be only one who is actually in control and on top. Which means that the rest of us in the game are merely playing for scraps and delusions. Jacob was playing God with his whole life by trusting in his own resources. So God took away the pride of his strength. A severe mercy. Severe because when, when God changes us and when we're open to change, we actually lose a part of ourselves that, you know, when, even when you make a good change, when you give something up, there's a loss there. You have to, to change the way you actually were used to living, the crutches that we used to rely upon. There's a true grieving process. There's a chaos that is inside, a soul searching. But it's such a mercy because when we're stripped of our crutches, we're free to cling to God. Truly trust Him. Jacob comes out of this encounter with a limp, something he can't hide, but he becomes a much better man and a better leader. He's learned that, that prayer is more effective, more powerful than merely striving. He's learned that God is a better ally than all of his scheming put together. He's learned that he's not number one because God is number one. And you know, when we figure that out, boy, life seems a lot more real and a lot less like a charade. So, what are some of our limps? What are some of the disabilities that you have? Some limps we get from birth. Some are physical, like an actual limp. Some are emotional. Some are mental, biological. The things, it's the hand we're dealt. Some of our limps are from nature, others come from nurture or lack thereof. Some of you have experienced abuse on a different, on a wide spectrum. Maybe you bought into the Kool-Aid that you're not smart enough, or you're not good looking enough, or you're not strong enough or good enough. And some of you on a much worse extreme have been so betrayed by someone who was supposed to be the person looking out for you and caring for you, that you've got a permanent guard up. Maybe your mantra is never again. Some limps are directly God-given. Like Jacob's hip. 
Sometimes God will give you a limp by calling you into a life situation, to a job or a new setting that, is, that exposes your weakness. I'll tell you what, half of church planting here in the Letter Streets is because I believe that God wants to bring this group together to reflect His kingdom glory in this neighborhood. But I would be lying to you if I didn't admit that 49% of it is also, I think God is calling me to this thing that is far beyond my skill set, challenging me, bringing me into uh, a situation, into a calling, into a vocation where I don't measure up. I do not have what it takes in myself to do this. Forcing me, giving me a limp by exposing my weaknesses. I have to rely on the living God. Some limps are self-imposed. You see, the problem with our condition is even when God gives us a challenge, gives us a limp, exposes something, boy, we're, we're kind of hardwired to overcome it, aren't we? we? We might begin by trusting God, but then we figure out through our own skills and our own resources how to mask it, how to cover it up. So there's two ways to remedy that. One is, God's just going to keep giving us more challenges and more limps. He's going to keep exposing uh, weaknesses inside of us. And in His mercy, He's going to keep doing that until we trust, and until we learn to trust in Him. The second thing, and this is maybe the more uh, preferable route, is to impose certain limps on ourselves. So for example, if you find yourself being too self-reliant, maybe a fast would be in order. A fast from food, boy, it can remind you to, uh, to pray, to trust in God when you're getting irritable and cranky and feel weak. Sometimes a, a fast from electronics, just try it for a day or a weekend. Don't touch your cell phone, don't check your email, don't watch TV. And sometimes that can, that can reveal how, boy, we've been keeping ourselves busy, but we haven't been doing anything with substance. Taking the time to serve someone who can't serve you back can address that limp of selfishness. Some of you might want to impose a limp in your life to help you trust Jesus more than your own resources. Now, if I ended the message here, I think you could probably leave with some good advice, you know. Uh, you might leave thinking that all you need to do is get some, get some perspective. Uh, get in touch with your inner limp. Make a resolution to trust God. Boy, that sounds good. But this story of Jacob and the wrestling God takes our sin and our fallenness way too seriously to leave this as a self-help uh, passage. See, after Jacob's hip was dislocated, he hung on. And I love it. I mean, say what you will about Jacob. I think the guy's kind of a sleazeball. He's a conniver. But you can't knock the guy for his passion. He just hangs on. He's, got, he's lost his hip. He's with this, this wrestling God. And he holds on and he wants a blessing before daybreak. Now, who knows what Jacob was thinking? Perhaps he wants, you know, he's recognizing, this guy's something special. First of all, no one has ever matched me physically. And second of all, he just touched my hip and magically my hip comes up. This guy's special. So he holds on for this blessing. We don't know exactly what he was thinking. I mean, maybe he wanted more flocks or more land or more influence. Those are all kind of common ancient Near Eastern blessings. 
But this wrestling God digs deeper into Jacob's core identity. He asks Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob replies to this question by simply saying his name out loud. In Hebrew, Yaakov. What is your name? He says out loud, Yaakov. And of course, his name in Hebrew connotes the idea of grasper and deceiver. He was a deceiver, wasn't he? His brother Esau said, Is he not rightly called Yaakov? For he has tricked me these two times. He's literally, he's Jacobed me two times. In saying his name out loud, Jacob is making a confession. He is condemning himself. On one hand, he's holding on to the wrestling God. At the same time, he's saying, I am a deceiver. Confession is admitting the truth about who you are before God. It's agreeing with God about the truth of your situation. See, we all want the blessing. We all want a do-over. We all want a clean slate, a fresh start. Jacob wants a victory from Esau. He wants favor with Laban. He wants a smooth life, but he hasn't yet dealt with God and the reality of his sin until now. And I think this is a great time for us to wrestle with, what would, what would my name be if God asked me, what is your name? What would your name be? Fearful, blind, arrogant, insecure, broken, lustful, selfish, angry, shame, regret. Maybe your name would be numb. Maybe your name would be rebel. What is your name before God? Hear the good news. You are not eternally defined by your name as it stands right now. Your name can become past tense because we have a God who is in the business of giving new names. Instead of a blessing, Jacob, instead of blessing Jacob with more crutches like wealth that can mask his problems, uh, like long life, like power that he can corrupt, God blesses him with the one thing that Jacob couldn't and that we can't procure with all of our striving and all of our strength and all of our resources. And that is a new name, a new identity. He gives Jacob the new name Israel. Which if you actually, uh, the, the most sure translation to this, the most accurate translation, is literally, God fights. God fights. And that is good news, that God fights. He is the God who loves us enough to become incarnate, that means in the meat, in the flesh. He condescended to Jacob's level. I mean, the, the, the God who created the universe really is a stalemate with a human being? I don't think so. He, he condescends to Jacob's level. He strives with him out of mercy. He meets us, you and I, where we're at. He fights for us. And by His grace, sometimes we need Him to do this, He fights with us. Of course, centuries later, Jesus would be God in the flesh. God became flesh. He would dwell among us. 
and die for us and rise again, giving us new life and new names. From faithless ones we become faithful, from rebel to reliable, from lustful to loyal, from refuse to redeemed and renewed and recreated. Amen? This is the God who exposes our limps so that we can learn to trust Him. And in Christ, when we stop hiding and learn to live with our limps, we learn to live what Paul lived firsthand. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being the type of God who would wrestle with us. Even when we are blind and deaf to the reality of our situation, you continue to pursue us. And you have a way of redeeming even our mistakes, the hard things we go through. Thank you that you're ever about shaping our character to more and more reflect you. Jesus, thank you for wrestling to the point of death. For taking all that evil had to give and defeating it on our behalf. Help us to come out of hiding. Help us, Lord, to expose our souls to your healing, to your forgiveness, to your truth. Lord, we surrender. Amen.